This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the widespread movements gaining steam around the world using disruption of business as usual as a tactic to protest insufficient governmental action on climate change. Now, before we get started, here are just a few thoughts to uh, take with you into today's topic. We've talked recently on the show about the psychology of politics during depressing times, people struggling with the news being really difficult, and this is doubly so when it comes to the climate crisis. And what I said is that activism is the answer to depression. Looking away, burying one's head in the sand, any of those things, it's uh, you know, it, it's like sugar when you need energy. Like, okay, maybe you can distract yourself for a little while, but it is not what you need, uh, as activists like to say, um, this is a marathon, not a sprint. We need actual sustenance, not just sugar to, to get through. And activism in all of its variety of forms is what actually feeds the soul for people who are engaged in politics, aware of politics, know that things are going badly, and uh, and need to do something for their mental health. Uh, I'm certainly in favor of taking breaks from the news and all of that, but uh, what really gets people through is getting involved and making a difference. So we're going to hear about that on the show today. Just wanted to remind you of that. And then there's another topic that comes up that I, I just want to highlight before we get started, which is that when the solution doesn't match the problem, it actually leads to disillusionment rather than empowerment. And so the, the classic example in just for my uh, life and experience is an inconvenient truth. You know, I, I was uh, geared up, excited about an inconvenient truth when it came out. I saw it in the theater and uh, I, I didn't have this criticism at the time, but with hindsight, I, I see it clearly. The credits that roll at the end of the original An Inconvenient Truth are suggestions of what you can do to help, right? And they are the traditional nonsense suggestions like changing your light bulbs, which is not in and of itself bad, but what is horrific is that there was no mention of calling your congressman, for instance. And so what happens, even if subconsciously, if you present a problem like the world is going through a catastrophic change and we need to do everything in our power to solve the problem. Now, here's what you should do. Change your light bulbs. There is such a disconnect between those two things that people instinctually know that the solution you are providing is not good enough for the problem you are presenting. And so you, you, we're going to talk about that in the show today, but Think about that in other realms, too. Any political question that comes up as the progressive versus conservative battle rages in all sorts of areas, just think about the, the solutions that are being provided and realize that if they are not good enough for the problems we are dealing with, it is not empowering I think that was the idea is like, oh, if we tell people that all they have to do is change their light bulbs, that'll make people feel empowered that, hey, I can do something. I can make a difference. And no, what actually happens is that people realize, oh, 
there is no solution. No one is presenting a solution for me to get excited about. But as we're going to hear today, when a solution is presented, people get excited about it. When people demand action that actually rises to the level of the problem we are facing, people get excited about it. They're willing to take to the streets for it. Just imagine if politicians took that advice to heart and suggested solutions in other areas that were so bold and and so dynamic and actually answered the problems we were facing that it got people excited enough to get in the streets. So those are just some thoughts to take with you into the topic today. Uh, also stick around at the end of the show. We're going to have a discussion on reparations, continuing from a recent episode on the topic, uh, thinking about how to structure reparations in light of our understanding about how toxic means-tested programs tend to be and how bulletproof universal programs tend to be. But first, onto the show. Clips today come from Weekly Economics, Citizen Climate Lobby, The Green News Report, The Michael Brooks Show, No Ordinary Lawsuit, The Young Turks, and a TED Talk by Greta Thunberg. There's been a, a notable difference in the past year in the way that climate change is spoken about. And the polls show that public interest in climate has increased significantly. How and why do you think that's happened? Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I, I, apparently it's it's number three or something in, in the general public's top yeah. concerns after the NHS and Brexit. Mm. I think there has been a huge upswell in interest. I think it's down to a number of different things colliding. You know, we had the IPCC, sorry, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, report coming out, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, coming out last um, autumn, which kind of had that headline figure around 12 years left, which sort of, I think, ignited a lot of organisers, activists, organisations to feel quite emboldened to up the urgency of their of, of what they were saying mm. and Extinction Rebellion kind of uh, beginning in the autumn and then having this massive moment in March but th- but that actually came after the first youth strikes mm. you know there was a massive youth strike mid-February which was drawing on Greta's exploding and then and then Greta coming to the UK you know there, there was this and the heat wave in February mm. you know you have all these different things playing off one another to create this sort of moment and I know that there's been analysis done of you know media mentions of climate change and it, you can track it over the last 10 years and you know we've surpassed Copenhagen and like Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement and Paris mm. Agreement itself in terms of right now media mentions are at an all-time high you know that's massive and I think it's organizing I think it's people giving themselves the power to take to the streets you know I've obviously been interacting mostly with the youth strikers Mm. in the UK who are so amazing and inspiring they're so inspiring and you know they're incredibly focused actually their political analysis is is really amazing they're incredibly strategic they're Mm. leaders um but they also represent a sort of moral truth like a moral leadership Mm. and the fact of them being some of the people who are going to be the most impacted by climate change along with people in the global south along with the most vulnerable communities all over the world you know they they represent a voice that is really authentic Mm. when they say we we are going to feel this sorted Mm. out it it resonates i think in the halls of power and that's really 
amazing mm. so yeah I, I do think press I mean press coverage has been off the hook you know the, yeah. the news night the today program these are places where climate change has not been a headline issue in the way it has in the last few months for sure the government keeps talking about the net zero by 2050 thing but the climate movement seems to be pushing for the green new deal uh green new deal is uh is something that we've we've done a whole episode on on the podcast and it sounds like these two things are kind of different demands so should the green new deal be the unifying demand for the whole movement do you think I think what's exciting about the Green New Deal is that it's a huge policy platform. It could pull together social, environmental and economic struggles. And I think essentially it can fix the environment at the same time as fixing the economy. Mm. I think that the reason why for me it's exciting is it offers the opportunity to talk to people about things that they understand their immediate mm. concerns, their lived experience, mm. whilst also bringing in the wider problem of the climate crisis. Because, you know, before this, essentially, it was a combination of kind of more individualistic solutions about consumption, yeah. like, you know, plastic the kind text. of plastics debate or mm. that sort of thing, which aren't necessarily bad. Mm. And sort of technocratic market based stuff, you know, like you, if you give the market the right signals, then they'll build loads of wind power or whatever. Um, but actually, that I don't think people buy that that will fix this. If they're being told this is a climate emergency, we've got 10 years left, like this is really serious. I don't think they believe that those things are going to fix the yeah, problem. It doesn't feel like so enough. actually, it doesn't feel like enough. So, the Green New Deal, I think, what's happened in America is people are like, oh, that's massive. You know, when a when Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, I was about to call her AOC. That's how yeah. much. No, no. I, I mean, she's a, she's a regular um, a regular name on the podcast, so maybe the listeners would have got that. Yeah, when like you know, she talks about like this is our moonshot. Like mm. this is our you know this is a World War Two effort equivalent. I think people get that mm. because the severity of the crisis they are being presented with demands a massive solution. Mm. Um, and I think that people also, it, it begins with a concern of ordinary working people, like the economy's broken, it's not working for me, it's not working for my community, we need a new economy that's rooted in climate protection, jobs, you know, good, secure jobs, which can solve the crisis that's facing us. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, I do think it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity here in the UK as well. So we're here to say to our politicians... We need you. We need you to back a Green New Deal. You know, before that moment in Nancy Pelosi's office, which sort of catapulted their demand onto mm. the, the global stage, you know, they've been organising for months, years. Yeah. Before then, building up young leaders, building up their confidence, helping them tell their story. And then, and then that moment kind of comes. And I think we need to take a similar approach, really. And I think we need to be politically savvy about it. We need to be thinking about where are those places that are also marginal constituencies, where mm. if, if the issue itself became an electoral issue for this like impending general election that might come any minute, you know, for yeah. the last two years, um, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that becomes something that political leaders have to respond to in like a big visionary way. Back in episode 9, I chatted with Eileen Flanagan. 
Eileen spoke to us about the four different roles change agents take. And the names we've given them are helper, advocate, organizer, and rebel. And they show up in all kinds of ways. And the way to think of it is really what is their orientation? Eileen explains the role of the rebel. In contrast, a rebel uses disruptive tactics. They don't do letter writing. They don't do lobbying. Instead, they do protest of various kinds. In my tradition, we usually use nonviolent direct action, targeting a decision maker, maybe a corporation, and trying to get them to change a policy through consistent troublemaking. The rebel on today's show comes from England. Meet Robin Boardman. A university student in Bristol, England, Robin is always up for an adventure. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Love going to the south coast of Spain and jumping off the highest rocks that I can find. Robin's adventures have taken a more political tone recently. What I've been doing in previous months, blockading streets, shouting in the halls of Parliament, and going on hunger strike, that has definitely been uh, quite a bit of adrenaline going through my system as I do those things because that is just not the person I am. I actually quite like pleasing people and making people happy, but that is not how systems change. Systems change when civil disobedience encounters a system that is, is so toxic. Uh, and, and it disrupts, and some people will get mad by that, and other people will join it because they realize that these people are dedicated and they've been prepared to do what it takes to make something happen. So I guess I get my adrenaline from those these days. Perhaps Robin's most daring action happened last fall. It was one of the first major nonviolent direct action events organized by the group known as Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, so I think one of the most beautiful actions that I've been a part of was the Rebellion Day, November 17th, 2018, when we blocked five of the major bridges in London with around five to 6,000 people. It was a beautiful, crisp morning. You know, we're worried about the kind of, you know, if it's going to rain, it would just massively put off the whole action. There was a lot of prep that went into that action from the early hours of the morning, people up and alert, uh, as many will know who have been part of direct action, is that kind of like adrenaline beforehand, which kind of surges through your system and keeps you keeps you awake for what's about to come. And it was just this beautiful still morning when you, when you get to it with all the equipment. There were a large number of police sort of around each of the bridges and coming up and chatting to us as we were preparing beforehand. The beauty of it was that we didn't mind. You know, we knew exactly what we were there to do. They knew what we were there to do. And we were honest about it and we were open about it. And that's a key part of our organizing is to keep that open and and honesty running through what we do. We we moved as as one. We had a sort of briefing circle where we talked about what we were going to do in terms of blocking off the bridge from both ends with small affinity groups, which are, for listeners that don't know, um, direct action support groups, people who support an action to happen or, or do the action itself. So these groups then took either side of the bridge. I was on Blackfriars Bridge. I was helping to coordinate the action on that bridge. So on Blackfriars, I think we had about 600, 700 initially. And as the day went on, 
the, the sort of bridges at the far end um, started to drop off and they would come and meet up with the other bridge to build into a large march that would then go straight to Parliament Square. So as the day went on, we actually got more and more people coming to Blackfriars Bridge because it was close to the square. We were there for roughly five hours, I think, blocking off a major bridge in London, which had a huge disruptive effect on the economy of a city, which is a key thing that we're trying to challenge. You need to challenge a government economically to make something happen. Uh, there's nothing quite like seeing a plan come together. <laughs> so when you saw all these groups take the bridge and then the speakers came onto the middle of it and everyone just sat down in this peaceful moment again on this beautiful clear sky morning, I just felt this massive gratitude around what we have done and what we are, what we are doing. And then we just had a party basically to celebrate what we had just achieved and how we, we were actively in resistance against the UK government and in, in an act of mass civil disobedience not seen for decades in the UK. Extinction Rebellion wants to bring about change. They recognize they do not need to have everyone involved. So building on the research of people like Erica Chenoweth, who recognized that we need 3.5% of the population mobilized in order to create a system change. While they are not proposing any specific solution to climate change, their main goal is to provoke climate action. Extinction Rebellion and those organizing with them have three clear demands. Our first demand to the, to the government is to tell the truth about the climate crisis, about the ecological emergency, and act as if that truth is real and stop hiding from it, <laughs> which is the classic kind of positivism outlook. Western capitalism says the more you get in life, the better it's going to be. And it's going to be a sort of positive uh, incline as you go throughout. And we all know that's not the case. <laughs> um, so that is, that's the, that's the first demand is telling the truth. The second is that the government goes zero carbon by 2025 and starts to draw down some of that carbon that's already in our atmosphere, um, as well as, um, limiting the use of resources across the world to below half the Earth's um, natural resources for a year. And our third demand, finally, is declare a citizens' assembly, to enact a citizens' assembly, which would have the voting rights around how we escape this crisis. So the citizens' assembly would be decided by a system called sortition, which is essentially the random selection of people across a population that would be representative of that population. In order to compel leaders and society to agree to these demands, Extinction Rebellion takes on the traditional role of the rebel. They exert pressure on leaders in hopes of seeing systems change. We're trying to create dilemma actions, essentially, as, um, actions whereby the authorities or whoever is in power in that situation are put into dilemma about, okay, so do we arrest these peaceful protesters for sitting on a road, you know, people from the ages of three to 85 for simply sitting on a road in, in mass numbers, or do we allow this protest to happen and allow this, this mass disruption of civil society to continue? And it's a win-win either way for the rebellion because either they arrest mass finance of people 
and massively boost our cause in terms of the publicity cause, the sort of sacrifice people made and how that ripples throughout society. Or they allow that protest to continue and create that space that says, okay, so if we want to block five bridges in London, the police are going to allow it to happen. And in such a way, can start to facilitate the downfall of the, of the UK government because they are allowing us to block and disrupt the economy, which is, which is as, you know, the research from Erica and others shows crucial to how we bring about this system change. And to do so, Extinction Rebellion has very clear values and principles. Things like we are a strictly nonviolent organization, that we build a regenerative culture, a culture of well-being, looking after each other and recognizing that we're in a, a toxic system, and other, and other principles and values along these lines. And what, but what the key, one of those key values is around autonomy and decentralization. So we are not becoming another sort of NGO type uh, hierarchical organization, but instead we are building a network where those who agree on these principles and values around nonviolence and around autonomy can then go off and create their own groups and take their own actions. In addition to the outward work of protests and political actions, Robin highlights how Extinction Rebellion also looks inward. They spend time exploring the deep and challenging idea of grief in a time of climate change. Grief is an amazingly important part about um, what we're doing because what we're what we're facing is horrific and it's so painful to take in. Many of us who are part of the rebellion have been through this grieving process of recognizing what is currently happening, and it's so hard to take in. And it often, you know, might mean that you have to go off into the woods and go for a walk for a while, and you might sit down and cry. And that's, and we're saying that that's totally okay. In fact, you know, we should be, we should be doing that because that's what makes us human, because we recognize what's happening in an emotional way. Going through that process, going through this process of grief and truly recognizing the situation that we're in is actually a massively liberating thing. In the same way that, you know, if someone tells you you have cancer, for example, then you're bound to go through a, a strong period of grief around your kind of upcoming physical health, you know, whether you might die. Lots of cancer patients do go through that process and afterwards, they appreciate much greater the smaller things in their life, their relationships with other people. In Britain, more than 400 climate protesters were arrested in London on Wednesday for disrupting traffic and public transit, the third day of a full week of civil disobedience and direct action in 33 countries, including the U.S., organized by climate activist group Extinction Rebellion. In an interview with Sky News, the group's leader, Rupert Reed, said such nonviolent disruptions are necessary to pressure governments into action. It's not going to be possible to use the tube 
if London gets shut down permanently by dangerous climate change, by sea level rise. That is on the cards unless we change everything and change it quickly. And they aren't kidding around. During the group's protest in front of Shell Oil's London offices, internationally renowned diplomat and environmental lawyer Farhana Yamin superglued her hands to the pavement mm. to call attention to the government's inaction. Mm, is she still there? No, she is not. Oh. Got to get better glue, I guess. There is some good news here in the United States. Colorado's new Democratic governor, Jared Polis, this week signed into law a major overhaul of the state's oil and gas rules, turning the state's focus away from encouraging rampant drilling and production and instead directing regulators to make public safety and the environment their top priority. Good for him. Finally, in Brussels, teen climate activist Greta Thunberg, teen climate superstar, founder of the school climate strike movement, chided members of the European Union Parliament in a speech this week for holding three emergency summits on Brexit, but none on the threat of climate change. Fighting back tears, she warned about rapid species extinction, soil erosion, pollution, ocean acidification, and she called on them to vote on behalf of their children and grandchildren who cannot vote. She referenced the catastrophic fire that nearly destroyed the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris on Monday and asked the members to consider that it took more than a century to build over several generations in pleading for them to act. The future, as well as what we have achieved in the past, is literally in your hands now, but it's still not too late to act. It will take a far-reaching vision. In other words, it will take cathedral thinking. I ask you to please wake up and make the changes required possible. To do your best is no longer good enough. You know, if that handful of rich families and oil companies who are paying hundreds of millions to restore the cathedral put it into climate change action instead, we might be getting somewhere. Today's episode is sponsored by Simple Habit, the meditation app that is solving the problem with meditation apps. If you're not already familiar with meditation, you might not realize how many different types there are, different styles and so forth. And so I'm looking at the Simple Habit app right now, and just to give you a sense, I see meditations for being productive at work, dealing with painful emotions, a meditation for your commute, and even being mindful during sex, which I had no idea was a thing. And those are about as different from each other as any set of meditations I can think of, so unsurprisingly, each comes from a different expert meditation guide. And that is the key to Simple Habit. They curate meditation experts so you can find the exact topics you need led by a guide you like. This is the fundamental difference that sets Simple Habit apart from other meditation programs, and they are being richly rewarded by their users as the app has more than 65,000 five-star reviews on the iOS and Android app stores and was the Google Play winner of 2018 for standout well-being app. Simple Habit is free to try. You can hear hundreds of meditations for $0 for as long as you like, but signing up for their premium account unlocks thousands of meditations. And right now, I have a limited time special offer for you. During this short run of ads, the first 50 listeners to go to simplehabit.com slash left to activate their premium subscription will get 30% off the regular price. That's simplehabit.com slash left for 30% off, so don't wait.
last week's in the United uh, across the globe climate extinction activists held the world's attention in a direct action extinguish, extinction rebellion across the planet to resist the mass environmental crisis, not just climate, but the gl- structural collapse, the structural assault, what I believe Eric Levitz is calling the murder-suicide pact between humanity and planet Earth. Let's watch this video from Extinction Rebellion to see what they're talking about. Yeah, we did ask the government to this year. The breakdown of our climate has begun. The ecological crisis can no longer be ignored. We are in open rebellion against our government, and we call upon every principled and peaceful citizen to rise with us. We have three demands. The government must tell the truth by declaring a climate and ecological emergency. The government must act now to halt biodiversity loss and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. The government must commission a National Citizens' Assembly, a group of citizens chosen by lot and reflective of the demographics of the UK, together with experts and stakeholders, to vote on recommendations on the climate and ecological emergency. We refuse to leave a dying planet to future generations by failing to act now. Just this past month, a draft UN report stated that over 1 million species face extinction, and it's our fault, more specifically capitalism and industrialization's fault. If we don't learn how to both transition out of capitalism and radically redefine industrialism, we will not get out of this crisis. The coming mass extinction event has already is already here, and unlike the one 66 million years ago, caused by a fast approaching outline uh, asteroid but unlike a previous cosmic event we can stop this we can actually act now to radically to end emissions uh carbon emissions to stop deforestation to stop species depletion to radically invest in mass transit to regenerate ecology across the globe to protect oceans to stop so-called externalities in the rapacious action of global capitalism. We need to radically rescale and reorient our consumption. That means keeping oil reserves in the ground. Good luck doing that in a free market system, period. But beyond that, we need to change the way we live. Fundamental to capitalism is the idea of infinite growth. But on a finite planet, that's impossible and leads to the environmental catastrophe we face today. Now, this does not mean some type of fold back into the woodwork fantasy. There's going to need to be multiple paths that are taken, including, of course, a life with infinitely less cars, more walking, more public transportation, more densely populated communities, uh, as well as a transition to fleets that still exist off of energy, off of carbon consumption. It's going to take place on every single sector, every single level of human and collective behavior. But if you don't have the fundamental confrontation with the logic of endless growth 
and the insane notion of externalities, which is fundamental to capitalism, those externals will ruin the viability of human life on the planet. In the UK, Extinction Rebellion has been an inspiring development over the past couple of weeks. The group staged mass protests in London. They shut down targeted areas, bringing parts of the city to a halt. The moves, which have included activists gluing themselves to the pavement, have been drastic, and they've been drastic to highlight the urgency of the moment, something that those in power and criminal fossil fuel companies have refused to recognize. They've achieved results. Last week, the Labour Party brought a motion forward in Parliament declaring climate to be a national emergency. Now, the Tories' uh, environment minister, Michael Gove, actually agreed in principle, but of course has refused to follow through on any of the necessary policy actions. Marking the vote momentum and Extinction Rebellion will hold another demonstration outside of Parliament before the vote. Before the vote. Uh, in the U.S., we have the promise of a Green New Deal to vote for, but we need mobilization to achieve it. We are up against some of the most powerful forces in history. This is especially true because we have too many fair-weather f- friends. If they're already fickle with their rhetoric and even more fickle with their actions, real action and symbolic action are different things, and we need a strong movement that can create support for changes that we need to see that we can build off of recent successes of Extinction Rebellion and other crucial modes of activism like the landless workers movement and indigenous people's movements across the globe. But it is also fundamental to think of what we do if we don't confront this. There's the global justice dimension that developing countries, particularly in, as an example, sub-Saharan Africa, the Caribbean, South Asia, places that contribute the least to the problem structurally are already facing the disproportionate consequences. Then there's the other reality that, of course, even within our own societies, mass inequities mask the radically disproportionate effects of, as an example, how climate works and affects people in the United States. Look at a catastrophe like Katrina and how it affected vulnerable, poor, oppressed communities versus ones that weren't. And then look at all of the major collapses in social cohesion that we are already dealing with and imagine a highly weaponized, austerity-driven, micro-segmented capitalist societies. That will be a catastrophe, compounded by a catastrophe. So we need to act now and we need to put the fundamentals on the table in order to do so. If you could share a little bit about what's your theory of how big social change happens and are the strategies that you're using or the organizations that you're working with are using, are they adequate to meet the urgency and scale of the climate crisis? So I can talk about my theory of change is really that we need to be working in all three branches of government, but that our political branches have really failed. So our hope is that by having people in the streets, we're supporting people in the streets by going to the courts, by holding the political branches accountable and, you know, allowing like the Sunrise Movement to put forward legislation for the Green New Deal that's ready when legislators are forced to act because the courts have said you can't continue down this path anymore. And so it's really, it's all of it. It's, it's what they did in the civil rights movement. You know, we have to be in the streets, the courts, Congress, the executive. We have to be everywhere and as powerfully as we can. 
yeah, I would, I would definitely add to that. Uh, I agree that it, it does have to be, yep, got you. Uh, I would agree that it does have to be everything. Um, we, we have to be doing everything that we can and we have to be using as many strategies as we can. And I think that's reflective of how intersectional of an issue this is, as we talked about before and how many issues that this, that climate change encompasses and how many issues that climate change perpetuates. So I think that really zeroing in on the idea of not just talking about emissions, talking about the people that are being impacted on the ground and the livelihoods and telling the stories, I think that's what's really important when we're talking about the issue because we, we could say all the numbers and science we want, but we all know that there's going to be people who just shut off. <laughs> but it's harder to shut off when you're really talking about humanity, when you're talking about something that everyone has in them. And um, yeah, that's what I would say. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I shared a bit already, but to kind of recap, I think the Sunrise's theory of change has three prongs, building people power, building political power, and aligning a diverse array of political and social groups and forces around a shared agenda for society. Um, that includes building a new consensus that we need a government that actually works for, for the people and serves the common good. And I think the, the bit that I just want to hammer home that I know for me was um, actually a new way of thinking that came after Trump got elected in 2016 is that there, there is no stopping climate change without seriously contending with what it will take to win and hold governing power in this country. And I just want to be really clear about that. Like, I think, yeah, I, I think the United States is the country globally most responsible for this crisis. We have the greatest responsibility in, to intervene in it. And, um, and we have uh, a tremendous amount of power at our disposal, but we got to, we got to grab it. So that's the theory of change. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would agree. I think it takes everything. You know, I had this like interesting conversation two days ago in a, in a cab ride in Brooklyn with this like Chinese immigrant cab driver where we were talking about the vortex and he was like, yeah, you know, climate change. What are we going to do? It's a conversation that people are having on the daily. Like, you know, it's the majority of Americans, like from U.S. citizens to immigrants, we, the, everyone be, knows that climate change is happening. They just don't know what to, some people don't know what to do about it. And so it's really about like, how do we, how do we get to that mass scale movement that we want? And I do think it's going to take everything. I think that like the next two years are extremely critical. I think that we have the opportunity to make climate change like among the top three issues in the presidential elections. Um, it should be climate, immigration, and economic justice. Those are the three top issues, and they're in combination with each other. Um, and I think that what Sunrise is doing in terms of, like, you know, like, making sure that there's hundreds of young people, like, you know, flooding offices, what, like, um, our Children's Trust is doing, what, like, 350 and People's Climate Movement doing in terms of flooding the streets, like, it's going to be a combination of these things that, like, help us move move these politicians on climate. Um, you know, like school walkouts, like what Greta is doing in Europe, for example, like we need to do that across the US. Like people really want to get engaged. And um, I think that we have the opportunity to engage them when we shift the way in which we talk about this.
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon. But now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And best of the left listeners, get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed, R-E-E-D, and use the promo code LEFT. Well, let's start with the debates. Uh, so in 2016, we had a significant issue because uh, climate change was almost never brought up. Yeah. Has it gotten any better this time around? Only a little bit, that's what I would say. I mean, you're right, in 2016, it was terrible. Um, there were 20 presidential primary debates in the 2015 and 2016 time period. And um, only about 1.5% of the questions were about climate change. Um, and in the debates between Hillary and Trump, uh, there were no questions at all about climate change. So, you know, they're starting from an abysmally low level. There's been a little bit more attention to climate change. You know, so last week we did see some questions in the debates, but um, there wasn't enough time spent on them. The questions weren't good enough. Not all candidates had a chance to weigh in. So there's still a lot more improvement needed. Well, there's two ways to look at it, right? They went from one and a half percent to six percent. So, hey, they quadrupled the number right. of questions. <laughs> uh, That's on, the generous read. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, six percent is not a very high number. Right. Uh, so, but you mentioned the press there. And, and how they didn't frame the questions very well. Well, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, some of the questions were, you know, is this going to just mean government telling people what to do? And um, how are we going to pay for this? And the whole, you know, the frame on too many of the questions was, you know, that climate, that fighting climate change is going to be, might be costly or difficult or uncomfortable with no acknowledgement that not fighting climate change is going to be much more costly and uncomfortable and damaging. So they kind of set the frame up wrong and, and in a way, you know, just sort of let, it's like the Republican frame. How are you going to pay for this? Well, you know, how are we going to, how, how can we afford not to pay for this? And you know, how are the Republicans paying for their massive tax cuts? Who's asking them that? It's, it's like the automatic go-to for Democrats. How are you gonna pay for that? But it's not put in the larger context. Yeah, well, you know, so then are you frustrated with uh, some of the proponents of big action on, on climate change for not uh, addressing that better? Because I gotta be honest, I am, right? So the press does a terrible job of framing often. They come at it on economic issues, not social issues, but on economic issues. They come at it from a completely conservative point of view. Yes. Uh, and and so, but isn't it incumbent on the candidates to say, wait, wait, wait a minute? How are we going to pay for this current system? How, how are we going to pay for all those 
fires in California and all the floods in Houston and Puerto Rico and Florida. All that money, ExxonMobil already took the profits home. How come they're not paying for it? So is, is there still a little bit of reticence on the part of the Democrats to be more aggressive? I mean, I think you've got some candidates who are talking about that and who are laying out their plans. And frankly, it's not getting a lot of press. Um, and, you know, so I think it's, you know, a candidate can put out a great plan on their website and try talking about it in interviews. And sometimes the, the host will change the subject if they bring it up. We see that a lot in the media coverage that we monitor here at, at Media Matters. Um, and, you know, they, a lot of candidates in the two nights of the debate last week, they tried to bring up climate change when other questions came up. But, um, you know, they ended up bringing up climate change more than the moderators did. But that didn't, you know, they, the moderators are still setting the terms of the discussions in many cases, whether that's in the debates or whether that's when they have, you know, when they're interviewing candidates on the Sunday morning political shows or on other programs. You know, yes, we do want candidates to be out there talking about this, explaining what their plans are. But if, the media doesn't cover that and engage on that. A lot of people still still aren't going to hear about it. So, Lisa, you know, I want to distinguish between the different moderators here because it does make a difference. And in fact, I'll ask you a question about that because Rachel Maddow did do a good job in challenging Hickenlooper and asked the question: Can oil and gas companies be real partners in this fight? Because you know, Hickenlooper talks about working with them to address climate change. So that's a good. Uh, aggressive question to ask of someone who thinks oil and gas companies are not the problem, but potentially part of the answer. On the other hand, Chuck Todd kind of gave a softball to both Kamala Harris and Buttigieg, especially Buttigieg in saying, how's your plan going to help farmers impacted by climate change in the Midwest? That's a total softball to right. an establishment candidate that they prefer more. Uh, so. Wouldn't it make sense for the Democrats to once get moderators that are all progressives? Wouldn't that be an interesting twist? I would certainly love to see that. I mean, it, you know, there are calls for a dedicated climate debate, a lot of people calling for that. And one of the hopeful or potential benefits to that would be having moderators who are well informed about the issues. You know, even even if they're not outwardly or you know publicly progressive, just if they know the right questions to ask. So I think there are a bunch of good mainstream reporters you could get who are on this beat who would ask tough and informative questions. And you know, and I also think there are good climate reporters at some progressive publications like you know Mother Jones or The Nation who would also do a great job of asking those questions. But the problem is that when you sort of get the general interest, you know, political folks, most of them aren't well informed enough to ask good questions and to call candidates out when they're sort of hedging or to push them and get the the answers that would actually tell us something new. Let Ryan Grimm Adam is what I say. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit more in terms of the different candidates because you brought that up. Um, so I don't know if you're allowed to comment working for Media Matters here on the the candidates positions. Maybe we could at least start out with the press and how they're challenging the candidates. Because one of my gripes is there's a lot of superficiality. Yes. And 
What I want to know, that's part of why we started the progressive economic pledge at, at the Young Turks. Where are you on these issues, right? I just, the voters have a right to know what you actually think. And so, are you in favor of the Green New Deal? What do you think that means? Mm -hmm. How would you implement it? So, first, let's talk about the press side of it. How right. good or bad a job have they done in getting these candidates to delineate exactly where they are on this issue? Yeah, well, at Media Matters, we're focused on the press and pushing them to do a better job rather than on the candidates. Um, and they have, media has done a really poor job so far. I mean, they just aren't asking good enough questions and getting the candidates. I mean, one of the things that would be useful is to help voters understand the differences between candidates plans. Yeah, they're all gonna say climate change is important. I'll get the US back into the Paris deal. But yeah, what's your plan to deal with energy extraction on public lands? What are you gonna do about fossil fuel subsidies? What do you, do you think nuclear should be or should not be part of a climate action plan? Um, how are you gonna help you know, uh, communities of color and low income communities who tend to be the most affected by climate change? How are you gonna affect the people who work in the oil and gas and coal industry now who might be need to transition to new jobs? What are you gonna do for those folks? How are you gonna help the agriculture sector? What should we do on transportation? There's so many great specific questions and the candidates actually disagree or, or have not made their views clear on a lot of these questions. And so I'd love to see um, moderators and you know and just uh, media hosts in general when they're interviewing these candidates really dig in a lot more. You've just reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and inspired to action, here's what you can do. Today's activism, demand a DNC climate debate and join the global climate strike this September. It's hard to believe that the Sunrise Movement has only been around for two years. The youth-led climate activist organization has been an incredibly effective force in a time of cowardice and inaction. Their latest win was getting the Democratic National Committee to agree to vote on whether or not to have a climate-focused primary debate at the DNC National Meeting in San Francisco, August 22nd to the 24th. To keep the pressure on and ensure the vote goes the right way, Sunrise just announced that nearly 1,200 people have already signed up to rally at local DNC offices across the country leading up to the meeting. Sunrise will also be sending 1,000 people to Detroit, Michigan to make sure their voices are heard in the second DNC primary debates at the end of July. Watch parties are also being organized to flood social media with climate questions for debate participants. To join this growing force, head over to sunrisemovement.org for all the ways you can take part and check out the hashtag climate debate. And finally, in May, Swedish teen climate activist Greta Thunberg called on the adults to join the youth-led strike for the climate this September. Greta and nearly 50 other youth climate activists wrote in The Guardian, quote, Starting on Friday, September 20th, we will kickstart a week of climate action with a worldwide strike for the climate. We're asking adults to step up alongside us. There are many different plans underway in different parts of the world for adults to join together and step up and out of your comfort zone for our climate. Let's all join together with your neighbors, coworkers, friends, family, and go out onto the streets to make your voices heard and make this a turning point in our history." Unquote. 
quote, This week-long action would be the first ever global climate strike with the goal of disrupting business as usual to demand attention for the climate emergency. So save the dates of September 20th to 27th and go to globalclimatestrike.net to learn more, find events near you, or organize one yourself. It's time to put real action behind that old Greek proverb, society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if demanding action on the climate emergency before it's too late is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about demanding a DNC climate debate and joining the global climate strike this September via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. When I was about eight years old, I first heard about something called climate change or global warming. Apparently that was something humans had created by our way of living. I was told to turn off the lights to save energy and to recycle paper to save resources. I remember thinking that it was very strange that humans, who are an animal species among others, could be capable of changing the Earth's climate. Because if we were, and if it was really happening we wouldn't be talking about anything else. As soon as you turn on the TV, everything would be about that. Headlines, radio, newspapers. You would never read or hear about anything else. As if there was a world war going on. But no one ever talked about it. If burning fossil fuels was so bad that it threatened our very existence, how could we just continue like before? Why were there no restrictions? Why wasn't it made illegal? To me, that did not add up. It was too unreal. So when I was 11, I became ill. I fell into depression. I stopped talking and I stopped eating. In two months, I lost about 10 kilos of weight.
Later on, I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, OCD, and selective mutism. That basically means I only speak when I think it's necessary. Now is one of those moments. <laughs> For those of us who are on the spectrum, almost everything is black or white. We aren't very good at lying, and we usually don't enjoy participating in the social game that the rest of you seem so fond of. <laughs> I think in many ways that we autistic are the normal ones, and the rest of the people are pretty strange. <laughs> Especially when it comes to the sustainability crisis, where everyone keeps saying that climate change is an existential threat and the most important issue of all, and yet they just carry on like before. I don't understand that, because if the emissions have to stop, then we must stop the emissions. To me, that is black or white. There are no gray areas when it comes to survival. Either we go on as our civilization or we don't. We have to change. Rich countries like Sweden need to start reducing emissions by at least 15% every year. And that is so that we can stay below a two-degree warming target. Yet, as the IPCC have recently demonstrated, aiming instead for 1.5 degrees Celsius would significantly reduce the climate impacts. But we can only imagine what that means for reducing emissions. You would think the media and every one of our leaders would be talking about nothing else, but they never even mention it. Nor does anyone ever mention the greenhouse gases already locked in the system, nor that air pollution is hiding a warming, so that when we stop burning fossil fuels, we already have an extra level of warming, perhaps as high as 0.5 to 1.1 degrees Celsius. Furthermore, does hardly anyone speak about the fact that we are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction? with up to 200 species going extinct every single day. That the extinction rate is today between 1,000 and 10,000 times higher than what is seen as normal. Nor does hardly anyone ever speak about the aspect of equity or climate justice, clearly stated everywhere in the Paris Agreement which is absolutely necessary to make it work on a global scale. That means that rich countries need to get down to zero emissions within six to 12 years with today's emission speed. And that is so that people in poorer countries can have a chance to heighten their standard of living by building some of the infrastructure that we have already built, such as roads, schools, hospitals, clean drinking water, electricity, and so on. Because how can we expect countries like India or Nigeria to care about the climate crisis if we, who already have everything, don't care even a second about it or our actual commitments to the Paris Agreement? So, why are we not reducing our emissions? Why are they, in fact, still increasing? Are we knowingly causing a mass extinction? Are we evil? No, of course not. 
People keep doing what they do because the vast majority doesn't have a clue about the actual consequences of our everyday life. And they don't know the rapid changes required. We all think we know, and we all think everybody knows, but we don't. Because how could we? If there really was a crisis, and if this crisis was caused by our emissions, you would at least see some signs. Not just flooded cities, tens of thousands of dead people, and whole nations leveled to piles of torn down buildings. You would see some restrictions, but no. And no one talks about it. There are no emergency meetings, no headlines, no breaking news. No one is acting as if we were in a crisis. Even most climate scientists or green politicians keep on flying around the world, eating meat and dairy. If I live to be 100, I will be alive in the year 2103. When you think about the future today, you don't think beyond the year 2050. By then, I will, in the best case, not even have lived half of my life. What happens next? The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children or grandchildren, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you, the people who were around back, back in 2018. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything, while there still was time to act. What we do or don't do right now will affect my entire life and the lives of my children and grandchildren. What we do or don't do right now, me and my generation can't undo in the future. So when school started in August this year, I decided that this was enough. I sat myself down on the ground outside the Swedish parliament. I school striked for the climate. Some people say that I should be in school instead. Some people say that I should study to become a climate scientist so that I can solve the climate crisis. But the climate crisis has already been solved. We already have all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is to wake up and change. And why should I be studying for a future that soon will be no more, when no one is doing anything whatsoever to save that future? And what is the point of learning facts within the school system, when the most important facts given by the fine science of that same school system clearly means nothing to our politicians and our society. Some people say that Sweden is just a small country and that it doesn't matter what we do. But I think that if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school for a few weeks, imagine what we could all do together if we wanted to. Now we're almost at the end of my talk. And this is where people usually, people usually start talking about hope. Solar panels, wind power, circular economy, and so on. 
but I'm not going to do that. We've had 30 years of pep-talking and selling positive ideas. And I'm sorry, but it doesn't work. Because if it would have, the emissions would have gone down by now. They haven't. And yes, we do need hope. Of course we do. But the one thing we need more than hope is action. Once we start to act, hope is everywhere. So instead of looking for hope, look for action. Then, and only then, hope will come. Today, we use 100 million barrels of oil every single day. There are no politics to change that. There are no rules to keep that oil in the ground. So we can't save the world by playing by the rules because the rules have to be changed. Everything needs to change, and it has to start today. We've just heard clips today from Weekly Economics discussing the recent rise in public concern over climate change, music to the ears of long-term climate activists. Citizen Climate Lobby highlighted the story of one climate rebel and explained the role that protest plays in the movement. The Green News Report reported on recent climate protests and Greta Thunberg's speech on the kind of cathedral thinking we need to face the climate crisis. The Michael Brooks Show connected the dots between the climate and capitalism. No Ordinary Lawsuit discussed the theories of change behind some of our leading climate movements. The Young Turks discussed the need for more talk of climate solutions in the democratic debates. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk by Greta Thunberg, appropriately titled, Act Right Now. Members this week will hear some additional material on how progress needs to be defined going forward by moving away from fossil fuel companies rather than us thinking of all progress as having been built on fossil fuels powering like the Industrial Revolution and forward, plus more stories on protest movements and a personal activist story about getting involved, and we end up having a discussion about the nature of progressive political comedy, why it is so hard, what place it has in the movement, and why I don't play nearly as many funny clips on the show as I did 10 years ago. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we'll hear from you. You may recall hearing from Heather a couple of weeks ago, talking about the prisoner's dilemma concept that I brought up in relation to how we feel trapped in our current systems, but recognizing that politics is the method by which we can collaborate to change our circumstances. Just wanted to refresh you before you heard from her again. Hi, Jay. This is Heather again. I just heard myself, and I knew I wasn't communicating quite clearly, but my point with the prisoner's dilemma was that we should figure out a way to show how the Republicans are putting people in the prisoner's dilemma with our arguments, showing the right how they're being asked to behave like they're in that, and if we can get them out of that frame, they can see that what's 
what they should be worried about is everyone and not just their core selves. Because if they only worry about themselves, they're putting everybody else back. And my point with Kamala and Bernie was exactly what you were saying, that if we really, really want something to change, we've got to, to go with the people that have the revolutionary goals and policies, not somebody that just on the surface of it looks good and sounds kind of good, but keeps backtracking. And I was just like, right after the debate, it was like, oh no, everybody's going to love her so much. But that that's all. Thanks. Hey, Jay, this is Jonathan of uh, San Diego, previously of Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm calling about the reparations episode. I've been putting off calling of this, about this one for a little bit, but uh, I'm finally biting the bullet and leaving my message. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how previously, with regards to some other social programs we had discussed how universal programs have a much higher staying power than ones targeted just at uh, one class or another because it's easier for them to attack, say, food stamps since it doesn't affect them directly versus attacking, say, Social Security where everyone benefits. And I was wondering how that uh, turned around and maybe applied with the idea of reparations because some of the programs they were talking about were uh, long-term duration instead of one-time payouts. And if maybe it might be better if we address reparations through programs that end up helping uh, African Americans more than they do other classes, but still are universal in nature as such to keep them around longer. Anyways, love the show, and thanks for producing it. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So on to uh, Jonathan asking about reparations. Just a quick refresher, what he alluded to, the difference between uh, means tested, meaning uh, programs, government programs, benefits that target specific groups. Usually you you have to be this poor to qualify for X benefit versus a universal program like Social Security or like Medicare for All, something like that. And what I always say is that means tested programs look good to technocrats who want to maximize government impact by uh, only giving to those who need the most, but then they create a bureaucracy that has to look into people's lives and determine whether or not they qualify. Oh, did you 
make too much money. We have to take that money away from the government benefit away from you or oh, you still own a car. You're actually not poor enough to benefit from this. So if you sold your car and made it so that you can't get to work anymore, then you'd be poor enough. And then you could get this government benefit, even though you couldn't then hold down a job. So th- these types of means tested programs uh, not only often perpetuate the problem of poverty that they are purportedly trying to solve, but they create a divide that can be exploited by people who don't like government programs at all. And they can say, look at these poor, lazy people. We shouldn't be helping them. The best thing we could do is to not give them any help so that they're forced to work for what they have. Universal programs do not have that problem, which is why Social Security has been going strong for 75 years or however long. So that's what Jonathan's referring to. And when we apply that to reparations, it becomes an interesting conversation. So let's uh, dive into that. The first thing I will say is that it is not my job to decide how reparations should be structured. I can't remember if this was in the reparations show, but it was definitely heard uh, in the research that I was doing. Um, There is a, you know, once you hear it, it becomes an obvious point that it is the black community which should be collectively deciding how reparations should be structured. So I'm not in the black community. I don't think I have that much of a say in in how this should go. That said, let's talk about a variety of ways of structuring them. The first is that a universal program, even if, as Jonathan says, it may disproportionately help people of color because maybe they're disproportionately uh, suffering in greater numbers from poverty due to the legacy of slavery. Anyway, set all that aside. Universal programs, by definition, are not reparations. And I'm pretty sure this was said in the show that what Jonathan is describing, a good policy that helps people, that's just a progressive egalitarian policy that's probably good for society. That's cool, but it's not reparations. It just isn't. Because part of the point of reparations is that it is targeted because it's part of the process of the country apologizing for slavery and healing our racial divide. So the fact that it is targeted is actually part of the point. We have to have it be targeted and force the country to go through a process of recognizing that these people were wronged horribly the uh the the people from those bloodlines and actually uh not even just from the bloodlines because the legacy of slavery dramatically impacts people who like immigrated here from Africa last week they're suffering from similar racism even though their family wasn't enslaved but they're still uh feeling the negative racial impacts of living in America based on the legacy of slavery. So anyway, the point of reparations is for it to be a healing process for the country, to force the country to reckon with its history in a way that it never has. It's a very similar concept for why there is now a lynching museum down in Montgomery, Alabama, because the country is full of Confederate monuments, which we have begun to have a debate about. But what we don't have is any memorials to the victims of 
the Confederacy, the victims of Jim Crow, the victims of slavery, and so on. And so we need to start that process. And, and we have. There is a lynching museum. There are museums working to uh, sort of get that idea out there. But it, it, it's it's all part of the same process, if you get my meaning, that the country being forced to reckon with its history is what reparations is largely about. Sure, there is also the element of correcting the enormous economic inequalities. But if you do that with a universal program and you try to correct those economic inequalities with a universal program, you might do some good and that's fine. And we're in favor of progressive policies that help people. It's just not reparations. That's just something else. So Jonathan is undoubtedly correct that reparations would be attacked in in the same, except much worse, way as means-tested programs are. It'll be demonized, vilified, attacked from every angle. But in essence, that really is the point. We need to go through that fight. We need for the people who would fight against a reparations program to be defeated and and for that debate to happen in the country so that the collective society can understand what we're doing. We can understand what that process is and why it's important, why the fact that this legacy still exists just and to understand that it is still impacting people today and that we need to do something concrete and targeted about it, not just try to help poor people and call it reparations. I mean, that's that's actually race baiting. I'm not saying Jonathan is saying that. I'm just reminded now that like Rush Limbaugh used to call all of Obama's policies reparations. He used to say that, you know, trying to pass Obamacare was really just reparations. That's the sort of thing we can't fall for or let them get away with. Policies that are built to try to help everyone, to raise the floor for everyone, that is not reparations. Reparations is targeted and specific and comes with an apology attached. If you have thoughts on this, you know I would love to hear them. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.